Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Good afternoon. Welcome back. I will welcome to those who come for the first time in this little series. Let me pray as I begin. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us. We pray that your word would be indeed our rule, that your spirit would be our teacher, and that your greater glory would be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I wonder if you saw on Saturday in the Times a very moving piece by Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg. He described how in his family they discovered some letters from uh, previous generations of family members, some of whom who survived the Holocaust and others who didn't. But uh, one letter particularly struck him, and he wrote about this in the article. It referred to an unnamed Christian family cook who had worked for the family for many years and uh, had become particularly close to Wittenberg's aunt, Sophie. And uh, after uh, members of the family were arrested and taken away to the camps, she continued, this family cook, continued to send food parcels to various sinister addresses, as they now seem, like Theresienstadt and Auschwitz. Uh, some, remarkably, some of these food parcels actually reached the family members, including Sophie, even though she never knew anything about it. She continued week by week, month by month, to send food without clues to whether or not they were reaching the destination. He, he wrote uh, in this uh, article, how he was determined as a result to try and track down this individual. She was unnamed in the letters, and so had to use various sort of means to discover her identity. But he wrote that the food hadn't been able to protect Sophie from the gas chambers, but the extra calories and the love that they signified had saved other lives. Well, finally, he met this cook's daughter, just last year, and they shared many tears and a unique bond. But in his article, he spoke of a crucial relevance of this extraordinary little detail of history to our day. And to paraphrase, it's because this is an age where love is more necessary, perhaps, than ever. Not romantic love, but what we might call political love. Now, that's not a thing that gets mentioned very much in public life these days. Uh, but this is Wittenberg's conclusion of his article. We live once again amid a politics of distrust. The referendum has shown how a society is split by region, by economics, by opportunity. Loving kindness and faith 
can cross all boundaries if we have the courage to follow them. If we don't, we risk betraying not only the humanity of others, but our own. In the first week, we considered some of the evidence for our cultural suspicion, as I put it, and summed it up as a problem with power and its abuses. Once you've had your fingers burned, you're reluctant to trust again. Then last week, we looked at the model and the appeal of the man in human history with unique credentials, Jesus of Nazareth, whom Christians claim is God at our level. If he was who he claimed to be, then he had at his disposal the cosmic omnipotence of God. But what did he do with it? He used it to do the most extraordinary, unexpected things. To comfort the despairing, to heal the sick, to protect the vulnerable, to forgive the guilty. In short, he used his power... To love. And he said that his was the ultimate alternative to worldly models of power, its uses and abuses. And in fact, I would go so far as to say this, it is quite frankly the only alternative. And he called on all his followers to do the same. To be, as he said, to be like the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We thought about that last week. We could therefore say that he called for a politics of self-sacrificial love. Now that is in part what lies behind the Apostle Paul's weighty words that we just had read from Romans chapter 12. You see, he says that to follow Christ... Well, he doesn't quite say serve and give your life as a ransom, but it comes to the same thing. He says offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a, it's a very striking image when you stop to think about it because, of course, in the ancient world, sacrifices were animals killed as offerings for the gods and it was practiced by all ancient religions. But Paul insists on us being a living sacrifice. In other words, a life of giving and serving and sacrificing on the lines that Jesus himself walked. That is, of course, the exhortation made in wartime in a nation's life, isn't it? And it can be commanded. The conscription of the masses to defend the national way of life. The few for the many. And tragically, sometimes the many for the many. Many, of course, throughout our history have volunteered out of patriotic duty to protect their families, to preserve the future. They give up their lives for the greater good, as so it's put. But can one seriously make this willingness of self-sacrifice a way of life in peacetime and at all times? that seems to be what Jesus is calling for here. And this gets to the heart, I think, of every modern ethical problem, believe it or not, because the dilemma is how do you instill a culture of virtue into public life? The thought of acting for the greater good, 
whatever the sacrifice or cost. You certainly cannot legislate for that. You cannot force it on people. You simply cannot tell people to be good, whatever good looks like. The former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, has written powerfully on this whole issue. And he notes the trend, I guess, from the 50s and 60s onwards of deregulation, so that, in his words, people could do their own thing in the realms of money, sex, and power. But there's been more of a sort of reaction against that more recently. And he writes this, when deregulation results in chaos, whether in banking, money, in human relationships, sex, or in the way we do war and politics and prisons and interrogation and so on, power, people are eager to reintroduce rules that will get us back on track. The problem is, as he says, introducing new regulations doesn't get to the heart of the problem. Doing your own thing really isn't quite good enough, but rules by themselves won't solve the issue. But this is where the radical nature of Jesus and Paul's political ethic comes in. You see, it's all to do with getting the right foundation. Look at the verse again, verse 1 there. And, and what is the basis of uh, Paul's appeal to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? Well, he urges his readers to do this in view of God's mercy. And that is the game changer. That is what makes Christian ethics utterly unique and what makes an appeal to virtual, well, even conceivable. How so? Well, the traditional appeal to, to virtue, and of course the ancient Greek philosophers and others uh, wrote extensively about this, uh, it, it was often based on the carrot and the stick. So for sort of earthly, worldly terms, I suppose, you could say, well, the stick is obvious. Virtue, or if you transgress laws, there are fines, there's imprisonment, maybe even impeachment. Our carrot in modern life for good behaviour, well, is a bit more nebulous perhaps, but no less powerful, public accolades, national honours, high office, and so on. But it also works in religious terms, perhaps in the sort of eternal sphere. So the old assumption in many people's minds is, has been that hell is the ultimate stick against sin and wrongdoing, while heaven is the ultimate reward for good behaviour. The call to virtue depends either then on appeals to fear or to gain. Very common, so far so good. This is the kind of thing that is presumed the world over in many parts of the world regardless of their religious culture. But here is the shock. You see, that is not Christianity. That is not the way Jesus saw it. It may be the logic of most religious worldviews in history, but it's not Christian. Jesus appeals to virtue, whether in private or in the public square, depends not on the offer of a reward or the threat of a punishment. It depends on a gift. Paul urges all in view of God's mercy, which actually is shorthand interesting enough, for everything that Paul has written so far in this letter, Romans chapters 1 to 11. That, in a way, 
is the story of God's mercy. And at its heart, God's mercy is seen supremely what the man who can be trusted with absolute power does with that power. He goes to the cross. He goes to his death to bring forgiveness and hope. This means that the appeal to virtue, whatever virtue might look like, and of course there's room for debate and searching of conscience in all of that, but the appeal to virtue is not grounded on a kind of moral bribery. It's founded on security and hope. Paul calls this way of life a life of true and proper worship. That's fundamentally different from the way of the world's thinking. That's why he speaks in verse 2 about the renewing and the transformation of the way we think. It turns it all upside down. We saw that last week. But that is the logic of what Christians call grace. God's undeserved but abundant mercy. You see, grace is actually the only basis for true altruism. Because we're free to serve others in love and not for gain or fear of punishment. We can love for the genuine flourishing of the other. We're free for that. Because of Jesus' mercy, you see, it is now possible to say, without any equivocation or doubt, I am truly loved by God. Now that's not arrogance, it's not conceit. It's not a claim to moral superiority at all. In fact, it is the determination to love because of our confidence of being loved despite ourselves. Tom Wright says this, agape, which is Paul's word for love, sets the bar as high as it can go, but the first thing to do before we can even discuss it is to acknowledge we've all failed quite drastically to clear that height. And that's the point. You see, a call to virtue is even for those of us who know how flawed we are, in our pursuit of that virtue. When I fail, which frankly is often even daily, that divine love is the ultimate safety net. Forgiveness is the best motivation there is to living a life of sacrificial love. It's in fact the only healthy one. So this is the shocking, but I suggest awe-inspiring proposal at the heart of Christianity in the light of this issue of a cultural suspicion. It's a challenge all of us face, but especially those in public life who are privileged to have a voice into the public square. If trust is to be restored, and I suggest that this is the most pressing need in our national life, even more than a sort of post-Brexit vote economy. Pressing and important though that obviously is. Then we must start with ourselves And even though it sounds perhaps weak, frail, even a little pathetic, what we need, as Rabbi Wittenberg implied, is a politics of love. That is tough, that is gritty, that is costly. But if I can be absolutely sure that somebody in authority over me loves me, 
and has my interests at heart, I'll be far more inclined to trust them, don't you think? Or does that sound hopelessly naive and unrealistic? Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship.